ever wonder what parenting is really like? Do you think that you're the only one that's struggling? Or have you missed out on that amazing hack everyone was talking about? Well, that sounds like you. Grab a seat and get comfy, as you'll be hearing real-life stories from parents that are on the same collective journey, a little thing called parenthood. We'll hear from parents, caregivers, and experts as we fumble through this wonderful path together. I'm your host, Rashida, and welcome to the Parents Connecting Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Rashida, and welcome back to the show. Today, we are going to continue a very important dialogue that we started with Grace Myhill, who is a relationship coach and an expert in neurodiversity. Um, If you haven't heard it, I would encourage you to go back to listen to episode four, which is where we talk about neurodiversity as it relates to relationships. And we introduce a topic, what it is, what it's not. And we get into um, some of the nuanced ways that it affects couples and the dynamic that is created when you have uh, two individuals that come together that might have different brains. And in this episode, we focus on the importance of having a therapist that is aware of what neurodiversity is. A lot of us have um, sought out therapy coaching, counseling, if it's whether it's on the individual or on the couple's basis, and it might not be helping you. You may be in stuck in a cycle because that individual inadvertently um, might be giving you information that's not helpful or that isn't relevant because they're not considering this neurodiversity factor. So this episode is really to broach that subject and to stress the importance of finding a coach. If you do think that you're in a neurodiverse relationship, to find somebody that is either willing to take some of these classes that are offered by uh, the AANE group or um, that that want to or that, that actually have the expertise themselves. So we'll provide all the resources in the show notes. There's also a Couples 101 course that you can take as a couple or as an individual. And if you use the code Rashida25, you'll get a discount on that. Um, I took it myself. It's extremely, extremely informative. And um, I think there's a lot of important information in there. So um, without further ado, let's get into this second episode. And I am really looking forward to hearing what you think. Well, welcome back, Grace. I'm so happy to have you on the show um, again. I think we had a great conversation around neurodiversity and the neurodiverse relationships that I wanted to bring you back on the show because I just think it's a fascinating topic. And I also think that it's one that requires like deeper dives. And so for this one, I thought it would be great to um, piggyback on the way we ended our first episode together, which was around awareness from the counselor slash therapist perspective of neurodiversity and having that as a layer um, when maybe somebody's seeking some help. So, so welcome, Grace. Thanks for being on. And why don't we just kind of get into it? And, kind of, you know, I'd like to get a little bit more of your perspective and maybe we can start with why you chose that as sort of your ending commentary, because it's obviously very important. So first of all, thank you for having me back again. It's always a pleasure to speak with you on these topics. Um, So what I hear from the couples that come to see me is that they've been to three, six, even 12 uh, couples therapists, and they haven't gotten what they needed. That's one version of the couples that come. Another version is that uh, they went to couples therapy and they will never go back to couples therapy again because it was a horrible experience. Maybe unpack that a little bit in terms of what what was maybe what were they seeking and they, they didn't get through and then what were some of the things that just made them that had such a bad experience that would never try it again? Yeah. Um so what I offer the couples is couples coaching, which is concrete tools and strategies to work on the issues that they come in with. And I'll talk more about that after. But what happens when it's been a really bad experience is that because the therapist hasn't understood both people, 
as a neurodiverse couple, they can inadvertently shame or blame one person. And so if let's say it's the neurotypical partner who has the horrible experience, it's often because they feel like their partner was on the spectrum was masking for the whole session. The therapist um, took that as face value and kind of viewed their partner as calm, cool, collected, logical, very engaging, very willing to help, agreeable. And they could sometimes view the neurotypical partner as hysterical, codependent, you know, all these horrible pathologizing labels that were really misunderstood because what was happening, it was crazy making for them to sit there in the session and have their partner be in, in masking mode. And the therapist, you know, kind of just thinking that that's how their partner was in the marriage as well, in the relationship as well. And so how do you, in terms of the masking concept, how do you, as a person that's, I guess, you're specialized in it, you're aware of it, you maybe know what to look for. So can you talk about how you would maybe even identify if somebody's, you know, quote, masking something and how maybe some of the things to look out for and what you would, what you would tell other people that are maybe on the expert side, right, as to what they should be looking for? Yeah, so it's really important to ask both partners, like what's happening at home, what's happening, not just in my office here, but what, you know, let's get really detailed into how these conversations go or how these conversations that we're having here, why aren't they happening at home? You know, tell me who's doing what, you know, let's say, um, let's say the neurotypical partner was to say, well, my partner agreed in here to be more uh, emotionally connecting with me. But nothing has happened at home that shows that my partner is actually trying to be emotionally connecting with me. Um, so we really need to know, like really trust both people's perspective to be valid, you know, they and to really uh, go deeper into it's not about what's happening in the therapist's office. It's really what they're taking home with them. Um, and this segues nicely into how it could be really hard for the partner on the spectrum with a therapist who doesn't understand it because they don't know how to do therapy. They're just doing what they are supposed to do in neurotypical culture, which is answer people's questions politely. And it's not, you know, it's not that they're intentionally coming in to try to trick somebody. They're coming in and they're just being themselves in a social setting. And they may not even understand that therapy is a very different social setting than um, a regular social setting where you actually are supposed to come in with um, maybe sharing more vulnerability about what you know and you don't know so that the therapist can help you. So in the same example where the therapist may say, you know, go home and be more empathically Uh, there for your partner or emotionally supportive. And they'll say, sure, okay, because they're embarrassed, maybe to say, I don't know how to do that. I don't I hear your words, I understand your words. And that is my intention. But nobody says, okay, this is what it's going to look like. And this is how you have to do it. You know, it's very interesting, because sometimes I'll say to, okay, sometimes a couple comes in, and they're coming in at at a point in their relationship where the neurotypical is almost completely burnt out. They feel like they've been working on the relationship for years by themselves and nothing has happened. And now they show up for coaching with me and I may teach them the tool, the question, answer, answer, answer tool, for example. Did we talk about that? We did. We did. Yep. Yeah. I thought so. So um, one use of a question, answer, answer, answer Maybe we can just refresh actually what that sure. what that is, what that tool is. Sure. So one person asks a question, the other person answers in exactly three sentences. They don't go on and on more than that because that could overwhelm their partner with too many words. And they don't say less than that because that can either sound abrupt or rude if it's like a one word answer, or it could just leave an, a lot unsaid. So the other person's making up assumptions. Um, it also doesn't feel like a conversation sometimes yeah. if you get like, how are you doing? I'm okay. 
<laughs> right. Then what? Right. So the bid for connection there hasn't been met. It, you know, so um, and then that person who answered then asks a question back and the other person answers. So it's meant to um, emulate a dialogue, a back and forth, both people asking, connecting questions. So that's one use of it to build emotional intimacy. Now, in order to ask connecting questions of your partner, you need to know what does your partner consider a, a connecting question to be. So sometimes people like to hear about their partner's life experiences and they may ask those questions, but maybe the partner doesn't like talking about their early childhood. And that may be painful or it may just be stressful. And so maybe that's disconnecting for them. Maybe they want to be asked about what book they're reading or what their hopes and dreams are or how they're um, thinking about something. So you really need to know, like, what is a connecting question for each person? uh, Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. So do you think that in your experience that the individuals themselves are aware enough to know what they like and dislike? Because I find that sometimes you, maybe you haven't been asked outside of the neurodiversity, there's like a whole bunch of other stuff that makes us individuals, right? There's like the path, your childhood trauma, like every, all that other stuff that makes you human. And so I'm curious, like, what do you do if, you know, I think in the last, the last session we had talked about where it could be like 10, 12, 15 years before somebody, you know, even realizes there's an issue and you're in the same cycle, where maybe somebody just, you know, you just talked about the mundane stuff and you don't know what is, maybe you've lost yourself and you don't know what's, what's interesting to you. So how do you, how do you go about and seek that out? Right. And so it's a really good question. Sometimes people have to give it some thought and it's trial and error. You know, and most people don't want to be asked the same thing each night when you yeah. practice this tool either. So it might be like you say to your partner, Hey, why don't you ask me today, how my dentist appointment went. And then another time Mm. it's like, Hey, why don't you ask me about my favorite vacation as a kid, or maybe ask me about my favorite vacation with you. Okay. So it really takes almost like a a teachable moment where you're kind of coaching that person to say, Hey, this is maybe what I want to hear, which I think is a little bit hard. I mean, as just the woman, maybe this is just as a woman talking, I think that's challenging in any, whether it's, I think neurotypical or not, of like telling somebody what you want to hear that that's a challenging thing. I think uh, an aspect of just normal conversation, right? Like, or maybe I shouldn't say normal, but like just regular conversation. Um, So, you know, I think that that's, I don't know, like where, where do you, is, is that something that's challenging for the couples that you, you, you talk to in terms of, well, it can be initially. And then it like with any exercise, you get better at it and you even start to like it. And it's like, you want to tell the person about something. So you tell them, Hey, why don't you ask me about this Uh, thing? Um, And it could be for the partner on the spectrum as well. Maybe they don't talk about their work because they don't think their partner's interested. Mm -hmm. And maybe their partner would be interested if they knew I'm only going to get three sentences about it. I'm not going to get all of the nitty gritty minutiae details that they can't follow. But, um, you know, three sentences worth. Okay. You know, so the idea is like, what lifts your spirits? What makes you feel that your partner is expressing interest Mm -hmm. in you in a way that feels good to each person? So back to the, um, the story, you know, when you're in the therapist's office and the person on the spectrum may say, sure, you know, I'll do something emotionally connecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they don't because they don't know what to do. So this is a tool that they can use to do that. But even then you really have to check out with the partnering spectrum. Like, what are you hearing me say? Let's check for understanding. Let's make sure we're all on the same page. So the person may say, you're saying that I should um, do this, you know, do this tool and that'll be emotionally connecting. Great. Okay. Then they come back the next week and it hasn't happened. And um, maybe because the neurotypical partner is burnt out, they have made a request of the partner in spectrum to initiate this. And so the week goes by, they come in and they say, this was, you know, my partner never initiated this. And the partner says, well, yeah, we, we did it a couple of times. And so now it's like, okay, what's the miscommunication here? Mm-hmm. So they may have asked a question 
but they didn't say the words. Let's do question, answer, answer, uh, answer now. Okay. So you have to be very specific and you have to, as a therapist, you have to check for understanding with the clients that we're all really on the same page. People may be taking some things literally, or they may not know that they actually have to say these words. Uh, because if you just ask a question, the person doesn't know you're initiating a tool. Right. To, yeah. You know, it goes back uh, to the intentionality. I mean, I wrote that word down because it really is about intentions in, in every way, like where um, you mentioned it, you know, before it's like, maybe somebody's not intentionally masking, or maybe you want, right. it's just, you have like the intentions are really what kind of set this thing forward, essentially. Right. So if you're in the therapist's office and you're feeling like you're either the neurotypical partner who's dragging your partner in, they don't really have any interest in being there. Or if you're the partner in the spectrum who feels like every time you go into that therapist's office, you're being ambushed, you're being told mm. what you did wrong, um, and you're not being given tools to build skills and make things better, you're just kind of feeling beat up. Um, or if you're the neurotypical partner who's feeling beat up because the therapist views that person as overly needy or overly sensitive because that's what the other partner is feeling they are. Um, and so if anyone is feeling misunderstood, uh, then, you know, then that's where the shame and blame can be coming in from the therapist. And then that's very hard to um, come back from. But also, one of the biggest problems is when a therapist um, hears from maybe the neurotypical partner, I think that maybe my partner's on the spectrum. And then they dismiss that. They don't do a formal assessment. They're not even trained to do a formal assessment, but they somehow feel very, uh, and I don't know what the word is, but they feel like they can just dismiss it because of a myth that they may have in their own head. Well, you know, your partner makes eye contact, so right. they're not on the spectrum, or your partner has friends, or your partner is very social and engaging and um, couldn't possibly be. And so that's very, very damaging to the relationship because first of all, if you're a professional and someone says, hey, I'm depressed, you wouldn't just go, no, no, you're not depressed. Um, I've seen what depressed people look like and you're not one of them. Um, you would, you know, you'd either do an assessment or you'd send them to an expert to do an assessment. Yeah. You know, it brings up um, an important thing where, this concept of neurodiversity is it is it really isn't what you think it is because of the myths or because of the things that seem so on an extreme side that it can almost be disguised as something and I think that's what my objective really is in having these conversations is to bring more awareness you know something might like a light bulb might go off to be like oh I never even thought about that like I'm struggling in this relationship and I thought it was just you know we had issues or we don't have the same interests or, or whatever, whatever, you know, I mean, every couple goes through um, challenges of all kinds. And so I think what, I think what I'm, what I want to, for people to understand is that to even just give it a, a consideration, maybe it's this, and then to go to somebody that is aware, as you mentioned, let's say a couple has parenting issues, right? So this, this, and you have a lot of individuals have very different parenting styles, right? And sometimes they're parent coaches, right? There, there are individuals that are experts at parent coaches. So what would you say, and, and maybe do you have experience with couples that come in that are working on a specific issue, let's say parenting, right? Where um, you have completely maybe different views of how you should parent. And then maybe this other overlying um, neurodiversity that may be causing some of that issues. Like how do you distinguish and do you, do you find people that are working with multiple experts or multiple coaches and how does that sort of fit in this, um, in the world? Because I think sometimes we treat, it's like medicine where we treat individual symptoms, but sometimes we don't look at the holistic picture. So what's your perspective on that? So I just focus on the relationship dynamic. And if it's really about the parenting, then I would refer them to parent coaching. And if they're the, if they're the parent on the spectrum, A&E has parent coaching for that. And if the child's on the spectrum, they have resources for that. Um, but using some of the relationship strategies, they can use them for any issue. 
for example, if we go back to the question, answer, 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 you know, they can have a discussion about any topic. So they can say, you know, okay, what do we think about our kid playing soccer every Saturday? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the other person answers in three sentences and asks the question back, you know, and they may say, oh, well, it sounds great for the kid, but I don't want to be involved because I need my downtime on Saturday. Um, but if you can either get carpool or you can do it, I, I would support that. What, you know, what is your feeling about it? The other person may say, you know, I also agree that um, our kids should do soccer. I do think that when there's a game, it may be important for you to come to the game so that our kid feels like you're interested. Um, but I understand you also need your downtime. So what do you think about coming once a month to a game? Would that okay. work for you? So you can, you know, again, take both people's needs and considerations into account and be able to discuss an issue. Um, now, that's something that's just, it, it's related to neurodiversity in that often people on the spectrum who are working during the week, um, they really do need their downtime Saturday morning. Like they really can't just jump into another activity. Other people on the spectrum may find it a relaxing activity to go hang out at a soccer field where no one's going to ask them anything for an hour while they're just in nature, you know, at a park or something. Okay. Um, so, it, you know, sometimes it can work well and sometimes it's, you know, a complicated thing. Even if you're, you know, the, if you're the parent who needs to bring the snack that week to the right. soccer game. Um, so then there's executive function challenge that may come in you know, okay, you tell your partner, don't forget, you're supposed to bring oranges this week. Well, maybe they didn't have the executive function skills to plan ahead, decide when they're going to go to the store and get those oranges. So how does that play out in terms of, because that executive functioning piece is interesting. Um, I don't know if it's kind of in conjunction with masking or not, but if you see an individual, and I'm speaking for more of like that Asperger's type of uh, trait where you're very intelligent, right? They've got really master skills and a lot of different things that maybe the neurotypicals don't. And so you can see them doing things at work that might be super detailed and require a lot of maybe executive functioning skills, but then in like maybe the home, the home front, you know, they just, you know, they'll say they'll do a bunch of things, right. But then it, it just gets lost. So how do you explain that distinction of, I guess, a skill or a trait that doesn't necessarily like follow all the way through like different um, areas of life? And yeah. how is that possible, actually? Yeah. So sometimes people at work, they actually have support staff mm. um, and they may have support technology where, you know, they they just look at their calendar and do the next thing because it's there. And they know they come into work, they put their hair down, they go through their day. It's probably somewhat of a routine. And they also learn that these things have to be done. There's no one else that's going to pick up the slack if they don't. Now, these are people who are successful at work. There are tons of people on the spectrum who fail, you know, in the workplace, who get fired, who don't do well because they don't have the support staff or they don't have the skills and they can't and they're late with things or they're um, working themselves, um, you know, they're overworking themselves. They're working um, above and beyond the number of hours because their executive uh, functioning skills slow them down mm. and they may have to just spend a lot of extra time on it. So then they come home and they're exhausted and they don't want to have to um, keep up at that pace. They, you know, so some will just like, make a list of things. Someone won't even make a list. Okay. But if you get to the point where they have a list, they get overwhelmed by the list and then they don't do anything. Or if you can break down the list to three things at a time, that's really helpful. Just put their focus on three things at a time. No one probably at work ever told them this, but at work, they have a a rhythm to the right. day. So There's really a calendar, are. there are meeting schedules, there are all kinds of things that are force you into, I guess, a little right. bit of a box. Yeah. Right. So if you, you know, can focus on three things at a time, if your partner is willing to do the prioritization of it, you know, when things are due, some people on the spectrum are, are great at time management. Some people are not, and they would choose to do the easy things mm -hmm. um, first so that they knock them off the list so that the list becomes smaller 
because that's causing them anxiety. Um, but back to an earlier question, which is related to this, if um, a therapist tells the neurotypical partner that you can't expect your partner to change, mm. or you can't expect your neurotypical partner to help out in these areas, because uh, you're the one that has to do all the accommodating, that's also damaging. It doesn't mm, give okay. doesn't give the neurotypical partner the hope that they need to um, understand that they don't have to do everything themselves, which is completely overwhelming. Um, but it also doesn't allow the neuro, the uh, partner in spectrum to build some skills and to feel competent in some areas. And you know, sometimes again, it's like if you have a little bit of a learning curve and there's a little coaching, maybe, but you give them, okay, you're the project manager of the laundry. You know, however you do it will be fine with me, um, but here's the instructions. I'll put it on the washing machine and the dryer, and then um, maybe they can do all of the cleaning of the laundry, but they just can't do the putting it away part. Um, so maybe that there's a division of labor. That's yeah. not, it's not maybe typical, but maybe it's like, okay, you do, you get it all clean and put it on a pile on the bed and I'm willing to fold it and put it away. And that's right. how they break up the task. Um, I spend a lot of time talking with couples about la um, laundry, about, um, about um, food shopping and also about dishes. Oh, so that's interesting. So I'm curious just from, from your, from your, so what, what are the, what are the things that you talk about most? Cause those are the three things I think in life in general, are, especially as parents, like you can't keep up with the laundry or the dishes or cleaning. So yeah. um, what are the struggles that, that your couples are, are seeing? Yeah. So and how do you some, help them through it? Um, so some people, let's say they're, um, some people on the spectrum are working, let's say, and they're working from home and they go and they eat something. Um, they can't take the time to deal with the dishes in that moment because they're in work mode. And so then for them, maybe, and this is just one example, uh, the dishes start to pile up over the course of the day. And then there's now a pile of dishes after dinner, especially. So now it's overwhelming. Again, when things get too overwhelming, it often causes a breakdown in functioning. Um, so for some people on the spectrum, the you have to figure out, okay, we have to figure out uh, what's the barrier to doing, to doing the dishes. Is it the overwhelm factor? And if that's the case, sometimes it's helpful just to have one cup that you drink out of in one plate and one uh, plate, you know, silverware placement, and you can't take more out you have. So if you're going to have another cup of something, you have to wash that cup before you fill it up with something new. If you're going to reuse that plate, you have to wash it. So you kind of force a structure mm -hmm. that prevents the buildup. So by the end of the day, you know, you're only going to have one cup, one, one plate, plate, one spoon, all of that. That's so a that's helpful tip just in general. <laughs> <laughs> all these things that work for neurodiverse couples would probably help, any yeah. couple, but not the other way around. Um, you know, some people need the to go with the paper plates, but some don't like that environmentally. So you need to get com com compostable, uh, you know, biodegradable uh, paper plates. And some people uh, just need to put it in a in a in a bowl in the sink to soak because they don't like the feel of the water themselves. So they could drop it in a soapy, you know, container of some sort. And then maybe their partner at the end of the day will be the one to take it out of the water, rinse it off, you know, because some people do have sensory issues and they don't like the water, but maybe they don't like the feel of the gloves either, you know? So again, it's sort of having the other person in the relationship, having both people really understand what's a challenge and what's a strength for each of the partners so that you can divide up again, divide things up in a way that is going to be the easiest for the team of yeah. the couple. So a lot of relationships that I work with don't come in thinking about being on the a team in the same way. Often the often their typical partner has much more of a um, an overlapping view of the relationship. So if you think of two separate circles, the Venn diagram, um, they think of them overlapping with a space in the middle. That's the we section, right? And people on the spectrum tend to think of 
two separate beings in a relationship, two separate circles, not a lot of overlap. Maybe they're touching, maybe they're far apart because they do think of themselves as very autonomous, often not wanting to ask for help, often not wanting to be asked for help. Uh, so it can feel to them, to them, it feels great. You know, they like parallel play. They like their their company of their partner. They don't need to interact a whole lot. They love the security feeling of being in a relationship, but that's enough. And the for need, the other- yeah, yeah, but the need doesn't seem as significant. And so that's, does that lead into potentially why um, some on the spectrum may not even have a clue or an understanding that the neurotypical is even having any issues because for them, they're kind of going through life thinking, well, things are great. I mean, you know, you're here and we're around and, you know, we're, we're having, you know, good things. And so does that, I would imagine that yeah. that would be part of it. Okay. Yeah. And that comes back to the first topic about in the therapist's office, when the person on the spectrum says, everything's fine. Our relationship's fine. I'm not even sure what the problem is. I don't know why I'm here. And then the neurotypical partner comes off as being the one with the issues. And if they would just um, be happy, everything would be fine. Or if they would lower their expectations, um, everything would be fine. And what the other person doesn't realize is what does it mean to have a neurotypical brain? You know, there's so much focus once you know you're a neurodiverse couple. There's so much focus on everybody trying to learn what it's like to be on the spectrum. But there's not a lot of focus or validation that the neurotypical doesn't want their brain to be a certain way. It just is. And there's some, there's some downsides to being neurotypical, of course, you know, there's upsides and downsides of all of it. So for neurotypical people, they don't even know necessarily that they're coming in with these expectations that aren't being voiced and aren't being met. And so if they're not being voiced, then the other person may not know at all that they're there. They may not right. realize that they're disappointing their partner because of some um, expectation that they didn't even realize was there. And maybe it's an expectation for having small talk, which is just like someone says, what you think that you would expect. Yeah. It's just like part of how you just are you're right yeah that's, that's right. such an interesting thing you don't even expect it to be well you can't even you can't even think about that it's not the norm <laughs> right until it day. doesn't happen right until it doesn't happen so yeah. it's like if someone says you know um hey it looks like rain and you get met with silence and that happens you know over and over and over again in smaller and in bigger ways you the neurotypical partner starts to feel invisible it's like, they're not there. They're not being responded to. It's beyond being ignored. It's, it's, you know, it really messes with you because it's like, what's going on that my partner is so unhappy with me that they're not even responding to a benign comment. Like it looks like rain. And meanwhile, for the neurodiverse person, my neurodivergent person, um, they aren't being asked to question. So why would they possibly answer a statement? Oh, that's, wow. That's like profound. I, I just, re when you're just making a statement, exactly. you're just making a statement. Yeah. Why, why would uh, I respond? And they often don't even know what they would possibly even say to a comment because it's just so out of their repertoire. And again, it's not something that anyone teaches. So for today's session, I'll teach another tool that I call question, comment, compliment, or QCC for short. And um, I say, this is a good thing to do when someone just makes a comment, you can use any of these as a way to respond. So if someone says, um, looks like rain, you can say question, uh, what are you gonna do today if it rains? Okay, that's showing some interest in what the other person is saying. And the other person will respond and it feels like a connection. You can make a comment. Um, yeah, it really does. Good enough. That's totally okay. Again, you are not invisible. You're being seen, you're being heard. And there's some feeling that you're, you know, with somebody 
And, you know, and then you could always say a compliment. Now, this is something people on the spectrum usually have a hard time with. So I throw it in there as, a, as an alternative so they can practice it too, but they may say, um, uh, yeah, if it, you know, if it does rain, you get to wear your new rain jacket that you look really cute in. Now that would just be so connecting. And that's the thing that, you know, usually the neurotypical partners aren't getting that level of a relational connection back. And so you have to teach these things um, in an unshaming way. And it makes so much sense that they wouldn't know what to say to a comment and they wouldn't know that they needed to respond. And and, and even just to, to dig in a little bit, even for the neurotypical to even know that that is what they are seeking but are not receiving. Because I think that's, um, it's easy to, maybe it's maybe not easy, but there's a, you know, you can identify maybe the thing that the neurodivergent individual could do or could help. But I think where there's almost like a gap, like you don't know what you're missing until, until you have it. It's almost where if, if you never had it, right. Let's say, let's say you're in a relationship where you never even, you never even knew that this person was on the spectrum and you just kind of go on about life. And, you know, I remember you saying like people have gone 50 years potentially, right. Like no, I'm not knowing it. And then, because that's just, that's, that was your baseline. And then over time, it's like a slow creep, gradual, you know, maybe misery. I mean, I imagine if you're married to somebody for that long and you, and you're missing a pretty vital component of a connection, right. Of life that, uh, you don't, right. you just didn't even know you yeah, did Yeah. And that's where it's really helpful. If the therapist can normalize the neurotypical partner's experience in front of the neurodivergent partner so that they can see your partner is not overly sensitive or overly needy. Um, they feel alone. So the therapist may say something like, you know, it is not uncommon for neurotypical partners to feel alone in neurodiverse relationships because there tends to be a lack of communication in a reciprocal connecting way. For example, what happens if you make a comment? So if the therapist knows these things, then they could say, these things to the couple and then their typical partner could go, oh my God, that's exactly what happens. I never realized it. Right. It's yeah. Like a little investigation of like, I guess that's what, maybe that's your point is like when somebody is more um, aware or informed around neurodivergent neurodiversity and what to look for, they can ask these um, pretty sometimes maybe basic questions, but that would provide some feedback into understanding as to, oh, maybe yes. there's something else going on. Yeah. So what's your training in terms of when you got into it? I think you, I think you mentioned you kind of sort of specialized in, you know, in the neurodivergent world, but as, um, cause I'm not, you know, I don't know anything about the professional experience. How, how would you, what's your view on kind of, is it, where everybody should have some sort of training on it, or is it part of your like continue ed, or where 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 do you see that um, coming into play for, for maybe people that are in the coaching or therapy? Yeah, space? so right now, um, A and E offers courses online for teaching therapists or coaches how to adjust their approach when working with neurodiverse couples. So we're not teaching how to be a therapist or how to be a coach. But no matter what kind of therapist um, or coach you are, you do need to make adjustments. So if you're a cognitive behavioral therapist or a Gottman trained therapist or an internal family systems or emotionally focused therapist, um, family systems, any kind of therapist, you even an analysis, you know, an analyst who does analysis, you need to understand, okay, if I'm working with um a neurodiverse couple or an adult on the spectrum or the partner of someone, I need to understand that this other stuff is happening and that needs to be addressed as well. And it probably needs to be addressed with psychoed and being able to help both partners learn more about each other's way of thinking and their own brains, and then how to reframe some of the past that's gone down without this knowledge. They may have to reframe this with this yeah. new lens so that they can start to heal because when you don't have the lens, you take everything personally. There's no other explanation really. Um, but then, you know, you can also then apply these concrete tools and strategies. So we have that training and 
We offer continuing education units for, for, through the APA or ASWB um, organizations. So that's helpful for a lot of professional groups. But ideally, this would be part of anyone's training while they were first learning yeah. to be a therapist. It shouldn't have to come later. You know, it could be part of it. Um, but I don't know that that's really happening. I mean, there may be programs now where you're learning about autism. Yeah, do, because of the awareness, because there is so much more awareness now, right, of autism and 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 maybe not quite as, um, I think, when I think of, when I used to think of the word autism, there's a certain, you know, a few traits that I would, that are sort of more in mainstream, if you will, um, that pop out. But it's some of the stuff that we're talking about is, is much more nuanced because again, it's a spectrum. And so do you, be, be, uh, I think as awareness has increased, have you also found that the individuals or couples that you're seeing, like, are there, do you find more, uh, like it has your, like, do you have more couples? Do you have more people coming in? Because now they're like, Hey, I, I heard about this, or I think this is it. Or, um, like definitely over time, I would imagine yeah. you've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really on the rise and the need is on the rise. And every day I get tons of emails, probably a dozen emails, new emails oh, wow. every day of people, um, asking for coaching or resources or groups or, you know, point them in the right direction to start understanding all this. Um, and that's just me, you know, and A&E as an organization, they're getting um, so much more uh, demand for their services, especially since COVID, when they put everything online, they've now oh, really yeah. become an international, a national and international organization because people from everywhere are saying there's nothing like you AANE in our area and we need groups and we need this so everyone's coming from all different places now so the need has really exploded for a lot of reasons um, but you know when people are learning about autism as part of their professional training it's you know probably oriented towards children um, mm -hmm. and maybe some adult stuff but really not couples stuff so this yeah. you know this is a very unique place um, to come to a &E for training on uh, learning how to work with couples. Oh, interesting. So, you know, you mentioned COVID. I, I, I didn't, uh, that's something that's kind of just popped into my mind as to when, like, because everybody was in lockdown, like, you know, especially in the beginning, like, how did that um, change the experiences of individuals? Did it make it better for some people? Did it, cause we always talk about kind of the challenges. What about some of the benefits maybe of like being in a neurodiverse relationship? Um, what do you, did, did that affect? I'm sure it did because I feel like, you know, from the mental health industry in general, I yeah. think it exploded with, with COVID and just, you know, you're in the same space with people yes. in general, which can, can make you go crazy. But, um, talk about, talk about that experience. Yeah. So on the positive side, uh, some people on Spectrum found that commuting to work and being in an office away from home in an environment that maybe wasn't very sensory friendly and required more socialization than they wanted to do, you know, at work. Um, so it was a relief. You know, they, they didn't need to spend that time commuting. They didn't need to be in uncomfortable clothing. They didn't need to uh, be in uncomfortable environments. They could stay home with their dog or their cat or whatever and be, you know, in their own environment. And it avoid the small talk. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and just get their work done, you know. And um, there was also a blur, I think, for a lot of people on the boundaries of when you stop working and when you, you know, but for some people on the spectrum, that's really wonderful to be able to just get into something and hyper-focus and not have to worry about coming out of it because someone's knocking on your door or, you know, you're, you have to leave the office and drive home or something. Um, but on the downside, there wasn't a, a time that they can transition like, mm, and transitions yeah. are hard. And so sometimes people had to create uh, that structure where at five o'clock or whatever time they stopped working, they would then go take a walk and create that transition time and then come home and be ready for the family. 
or they needed to shut down their computer, but just spend 20 minutes in their office meditating or, you know, go for a bike ride or something because that it was almost shocking to their system to come out of whatever room they were using as an office and then right into to home life, family life. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, just, I mean, that experience even here, like I, I, I now work a hundred percent from home and my spouse picks up the kids. And so it's like work, work, work until the minute they come home and then boom, like, you know, it's mommy, mommy, mommy. Yeah. And so I, yeah, the, the, I don't miss a commute for sure. Especially cause I'm in the DC, you know, we're in the DC area and you know, it takes an hour to get anywhere, but um, I do miss just the, like what you said, the transition of like, okay, I can listen to a podcast or right. listen to a book or right. listen to, you know, something, make a phone call. Like now I don't have time to make phone calls. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's um, true. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing that happened is as the neurotypical partner also got more isolated during COVID and wasn't seeing their friends and keeping up with their usual social life and social outlets and getting their Mm -hmm. social needs met, they were turning more towards their partner on the spectrum for social needs at the same time that their partner is wanting more downtime. And so, you know, that was um, a jarring juxtaposition sometimes where um, they were mutually exclusive needs. And so you had to help the neurotypical partner say, okay, you can't see your friends, but how can you still uh, get some of your social needs met with phone calls, with Zoom calls, you know, with whatever you do to give your partner some downtime that your partner still needs. Um, and there was also a lot of confusion around when are you interruptible and when aren't you interruptible? Because people in the same house crossing paths, neurotypical people tend to always want to engage verbally, like, you know, how's it going? Well, the partner on the spectrum is deep in their own thoughts about the work problem that they're, and so they may again ignore or they may get irritated. I'm fine, you know, and then that's a, a disconnection, not a connection. So, you know, for couples, there's always these opportunities for, connection. Every minute of every day is an opportunity for connection, but it's also equally an opportunity for disconnection or a mis a misconnection. Which probably brings them even further or pulls them further apart. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So it kind of all of this, you know, negatively impacts intimacy when your feelings are hurt. Right. Um, so some couples have had to have um, some very, very creative solutions to signify when a person's interruptible and when they're not interruptible. And um, sometimes it's a partner on the spectrum who doesn't know when the neurotypical partner is, in, is, is interruptible or not. And they tend to just show up and look at them. And that's unnerving for the other person. <laughs> and they think, well, I'm not interrupting you. It's like, yeah, you are. Just wait. We're just, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for you. Right. <laughs> right. And I, I'd rather you just come and say, can you talk? Um, but those little bridges of communication, can you talk? Are you available? Um, they, these are things that people have to give thought to. And you're not going to learn this when you're in social work school, right? Or, you know, or getting a PhD in psychology, you're going to have to, help couples indicate to each other when they're available for talking. You know, some of these things, they sound so simple, um, but when they're not there, they're huge. And when intimacy gets impacted, um, that's, you know, that's pretty big. Um, So some couples just, you know, to give you ideas of some creative solutions, one couple wanted um, the person who was unavailable, who didn't like the interruptions, who needed, you know, the time to focus, uh, would wear a certain hat. Okay. That's their, that's their, you know, I'm not interruptible hat. Another person wanted their partner to have a sign on their back, you know, (laughs) so a real, you know, you can't miss tangible. It's very tangible. Yes. Yes. And very literal and very, you know, very easy to understand because a lot of what happens for neurodiverse couples is there's so much guesswork involved. They, they sense on some level, even if they're not aware that they're neurodiverse, they sense that they're not really reading each other um, easily and they're always guessing. And that feels like walking on eggshells. And um, I hear that phrase a lot and it's exhausting. And both people can feel it, that they're walking on eggshells, that one false move and they've stepped on a landmine. And right. Now, oh, yes. Oh, gosh. 
It's not where one person has, because we talk about these things in terms of a neurotypical and one on the spectrum where one person has to change completely or the other. And it really is a mutual thing to kind of balance it out. And so even if you're maybe less, if you're on the neurodivergent, you may have the same feelings, you just don't know how to express them. And so I think that's kind of the challenge of, uh, and and kind of the beauty of like trying to figure it out. It's like a, trying to figure out a puzzle that works really well together. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing I wanted to, I, I wrote this down when you were talking in terms of um, reframing and healing from the things that once you start learning about these things that maybe you didn't know was missing or now, and, and maybe you're kind of reliving some of those things that happened in the past. How do you, is that, is that part of what you do in your practice or do you refer people out to, cause you mentioned you do coaching and not therapy. So things that are from the, from the past and I guess using a different lens, do you find that couples are successful and being able to do that? And what are some of the, um, the ways that they're like, able to heal, I guess, because in some, in some sense, I would imagine if somebody has been married to somebody for 20, 30 years, there's probably some sort of trauma associated with it. I mean, it, I mean, I think when people hear the word trauma, it's more severe or they think some sort of accident or some sort of, you know, some sort of abuse, but this could feel, I'm, I imagine in somebody in a relationship could feel like a little bit traumatic. So how do you deal with that in terms of like the therapy and the coaching? Yeah, it could feel very traumatic and it's ongoing. Um, so it's uh, it's something that I work with couples to go through an exercise, another tool. We could talk about that one next time. It's a bit extensive, but it is about um, trying to address past hurts and um, understand both sides, understand the perspective taking of how it felt to the person who was hurt and also help the other partner understand that the other person um, had a reason for what they did that made sense to them. And of course, no one intended uh, to hurt the other person and everyone has good intentions, but sometimes people forget that when they're hurt. And sometimes, um, sometimes, you know, the fights start compounding where one person gets triggered and then reacts badly um, in a way that feels attacking or shaming. And then the other person is now defensive and reacting to that, but it's, it's just a reaction. Right. And you're Mm -hmm. not even, it it could also become all about the, the reactions and, you know, now you're not even talking about the thing that was hurtful. So when that happens, it doesn't get resolved. Um, but yeah, it is an important part of working with the couples to help them understand some of those you know, those past hurts um, in a different way. And it's always about trying to see it through lens of neurodiversity, which is, um, it. you know, it was not personal. Mm-hmm. There was usually a lack of awareness. Yeah. And theory, you know, theory of mind is a challenge for people on the spectrum. And also some people now talk about sort of this double empathy issue where neither partner is really understanding the other person, right? So a neurotypical partner may say, well, you know, I can't understand how you would just not respond to me when I say it looks like rain, like I can't fathom a brain that would work that way. And so you have to start to realize, well, a brain that is program to answer questions and to not communicate unless it's absolutely necessary because communication is so hard. Mm. Um, you know, there's, um, there's a different way to understand it. There's a different way to understand both people. And then for the other person to realize, okay, this person did have needs. I didn't know they had these needs, but now that I know that they had these needs, I can see how I was disappointing them by not meeting these needs. So it really is always about building awareness and then compassion um, for both people and then building skills to bridge the gaps. Yeah, I think that's a great topic to, to talk about next time in terms of just like the, their individual perspectives and how you kind of work with them to reframe things and relook at things. So um, since we're up at the hour, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to that we didn't cover that you want to kind of leave the the audience with in terms of kind of what we talked about today? I would love to encourage professionals to take our training. Um, I think they will be amazed to realize that they did not know how many neurodiverse 
clients or couples they already have in their practice. You know, if you don't know what you're looking for, you don't recognize it. But as soon as you learn, you do recognize it um, a lot because there is a lot of it. And so um, a lot of neurodiversity and, you know, you really do need to know about it if you're going to be effective. So um, and I, I, you know, I did want to follow that up with, in terms of the training that's offered, is it uh, for a professional that is, uh, that hasn't been aware of it or isn't really well-versed in it, is the training um, a very lengthy thing or once they take it, they have enough tools to be able to utilize those pretty effectively? Or do you find it, could it, could it almost work backwards where they maybe have just a little bit of information where they're not they're not well versed enough in it to then actively um, help the couple if that makes help or individual even. Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. I think that the first course that's a 10 hour self-paced course called training 101 fundamentals of working with neurodiverse couples in therapy. um, That is a very um, in-depth course that will give them um, I think a lot of information and a lot of uh, ways to help their neurodiverse couples, both to recognize it, to understand it, and to treat it. The other course we have right now, which is the certification course called Certification 201, Case Studies and Advanced Topics in Neurodiverse Couples Therapy. The reason someone may want to take that course is because with that course, you get the AE certification and you get listed on our website as one of our AE trained um, neurodiverse couples therapists or coaches. And then um, that's really instant marketing. Um, People will come to that page when they're looking for therapists or coaches. And also we refer people to them. Um, And then we have a Facebook, a closed Facebook group for our trainees only where, you know, people are really professionals are encouraged to have this community with each other and, you know, continue to ask questions, share resources, um, let each other know, hey, I'm running a group for this you know, or I'm running group for that, send your couples or your spouses or whatever to me. Um, So we do provide, I think we provide a lot of um, important training that they could be, they can be the therapist that those neurodiverse couples want. Would you ever recommend or encourage your couples or an individual that either either neurotypical or on the on the spectrum to take one of these courses? Is it in for like, do you think that would be worse or beneficial for them to just even be like a, to have to be empowered to like be educated enough to then go and um, advocate for themselves? So we did create a course from the training 101 course. We created a three hour self-paced course called 101 for couples. And it does um, give them a lot of information. And it also shows interviews with nine neurodiverse couples, which I think is very normalizing and, mm-hmm. and helpful um, and creates opportunities to have good conversations with each other, like which couples did you relate to and which ones didn't you? And when people see other people saying the same thing that their spouse has been saying, they hear it differently. It's like, oh, it's not just you. It's a, it's a real thing. Um, so I do recommend the 101 for couples course. And, um, right now it's actually, um, on sale. Um, but I don't know when this is airing, but I think we have a coupon code for, for, for listeners that I will provide. Um, Grace has been kind enough to to offer that coupon code. And so we can attach that in the show notes so people will be able to hopefully benefit. Great. Yeah. So I do think that course is very helpful. Um, and it gives a real, understanding of like the main um, trait categories that people on the spectrum tend to have some challenges with. Um, And then it helps you really understand, we're not asking people to change who they are in this work, neither partner. We're just asking people to understand and then try to change behaviors. And so I think when you put that lens on it, that people are just trying to become more comfortable in their relationship, whether it's physical or emotional comfort, um, then there's maybe more willingness to try to meet um, their needs. Yeah. And and I think that for anybody that's listening, you know, even if you yourself might not be in a neurodiverse relationship, you may know 
close friends or family that are in neurodiverse relationships, maybe they've been struggling or having challenges for a really long time. And so offer this, you know, there's a lot of resources. We'll put the A&E website and everything. Cause I think that's also part of what I would like to do for people is even if you're, if it doesn't affect you, you're probably going, you probably know somebody that it would affect. And the point of this whole podcast is for connections. And so if you have a resource that you think would help somebody out, like let them know, tag somebody, you know, um, and uh, because I think that the resources and, and being connected is really, really imperative, especially in such an isolated world I think we live in. So so Grace, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really looking forward to our to our next little mini series where we'll get a little bit more into depth of, of different perspectives and maybe give you some more examples and, and maybe we'll talk about one of those tools that you had mentioned today. Um, so thank you so much and we'll uh, look forward to our next conversation. You're welcome, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you found meaning in this episode or learned something new, share the link to the show, tag me on Instagram at rashida.parentsconnecting and join my Facebook group, Parents Connecting. I'd love to see who's listening and the feedback has been amazing on the show. And I'd love to hear what other topics that you might want to hear about. The more people that we can reach, the more people that will connect and support one another. And that's really my hope for the show. And I'd love if you could write a review, rate the show, every single one counts um, and helps get the podcast um, out there for more listeners to hear. And if you want to connect with more parents, the Facebook group is a place that you can continue the dialogue on any show that you've heard, share a funny story about parenthood, you know, get resources and connect with others that just might be in the same boat as you. And I'm also going to be posting updates as each episode drops. And so be on the lookout. We are close to almost 100 people in that group. And I'd love to see that number grow so that our community can grow and we can learn from one another. Until next time, happy connecting.